last time I preached, I looked at Philippians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 1 to 11, and tried to highlight to you the high-low, high nature of not just Christ's life in Philippians 2, but also Paul's and others. And I thought we'd be, uh, it'd be good to just finish off the rest of the chapter. So we're going to look at verse 12 to the end of the chapter uh, tonight. Philippians chapter 3, page 981. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We'll end there. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. We ask of you, O Father, that you will open our ears to hear, but our eyes also to see Christ by faith. And as we live by faith, we pray that it will one day be turned to sight as we have read read in this uh, glorious section that is the great hope and joy of all who belong to our Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have experienced walking up a massive hill or mountain or running up a massive hill or mountain, but imagine that you were promised that uh, you would have a prize at the top of the mountain and that you would actually succeed on the journey and that by some infallible knowledge someone said, listen, all you've got to do is get to the top and here's the prize that you will receive and you're actually going to make it. Um, Would it make the running or the hiking up the mountain easy? Um, Or would there still be some pain involved? And I think we can all say it would actually make it a little bit easier if we knew we were going to make it. There's something about the way the human mind works that uh, just the guarantee of victory and success can make things a little bit easier. If you weren't guaranteed that you would make it to the top, you could be overcome by all sorts of doubts. And when doubt creeps in, actually it can have an impact on your ability to uh, physically succeed. So knowing that you will make it to the top and not knowing whether you will make it to the top are two totally different things. But at the same time, even when you know you will make it to the top, it's still painful to go up a hill. 
it's still painful to climb a mountain. And the Christian life is a little bit like knowing that the prize is there at the top and you actually are going to succeed. There's no doubt about that. If you are a Christian, you will get to the top of the mountain. But that doesn't mean that going up the mountain is going to be easy. And Paul is trying to deal with what might be a sort of false teaching that arises out of the glories he's spoken of in the first 11 verses. He has highlighted how all of his works in the flesh as a Pharisee were scubalon, dung, were worthless for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And he talks about how it is by faith, not by works, that he has come to know Christ. And in Christ he possesses all things. But if that's true, what does that mean for the Christian life in terms of matters like obedience and pressing on and straining towards the goal? If you understand something about the Philippians, I know uh, Pastor Scott has preached through this, but it's always good to be reminded. Uh, I, I forget my sermons uh, very quickly, and I suspect most of you forget my sermons very quickly, uh, and that's why sometimes I uh, will single someone out, because then they will remember that one sermon when they got singled out. Okay, Wesley, this is for you, brother. No one else needs to pay attention, but this will be the sermon you'll remember that you got singled up for the first time at Faith Vancouver Reformed Presbyterian Church at roughly uh, 5.36 or 5.37 p.m. And uh, that's the best I can do for you right now without really ruining your evening. And I may call on others if I sense you drifting off, which has been known to happen on occasion at the evening sermon. Uh, Believe me, friends, there are times I want to fall asleep up here. You're not always the most interesting audience. <laughs> Notice how it, it does cut both ways. Pastor Mark, he wasn't really doing well tonight. That was kind of boring. And I go home, I go, man, that congregation is boring. They, I, I don't know if I can preach to them anymore. Now, that's a little secret that pastors sometimes need to let you know. I don't. Scott's much nicer than, than I am. Uh, wouldn't say that to you, but I genuinely feel that way. <laughs> now, Paul had an affection for the Philippians. There is uh, some good uh, pastors out there. Paul is one. Uh, and Philippi had a special significance for Paul. It was the first church that he founded in Europe. Uh, his first convert was Lydia. And he proclaimed the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his household was converted. He wrote Philippians from prison and he gives thanks to them for their gift to him. And he wants to encourage the Philippians in their faith. He wants them to make progress in their faith. He talks about that in verse 25 of chapter 1. And by all accounts, it's a healthy congregation. It doesn't mean it's a perfect congregation, but it is a healthy congregation. The question is, can they relax as a healthy congregation? And the answer is always no. You can never just relax in the Christian life as though you can take your foot off the gas, go on holiday, give up spiritual disciplines, and so on and so forth. Sin doesn't allow us to relax because as soon as we relax in our spiritual duties, sin starts to grow and manifest and take over very quickly. Sin will never give up while 
we have these bodies. And there's a great hope at the end for those who do know the struggle with sin, which we will get to eventually. Now, what do we mean by this sort of need to persevere? Well, there's a note of frustration and hope in verses 12 to 14. Uh, There are what I see here as two negative statements in verse 12 and verse 13. And there are two positive statements in 12b and 13b and 14. So try and understand that sort of uh, way in which Paul is writing. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Remember, he was speaking about his glorification in the previous verses, the resurrection from the dead. And he starts off with a negative, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, which he will speak about true perfection at the end of this chapter. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not, and remember here is another negative, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Here's the positive. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I have not obtained, I have not attained. Then in verse 13, I do not reckon to have reached is another way of putting it. But you also see in 12b, I pursue that I may reach. And then verse 13b and 14, I pursue towards the goal. Two negatives, two positives. And A there, which I have not obtained, actually help us to explain that Paul realizes that though the resurrection promises his, it is still yet a future possession. If you want some rich Reformed theology tonight, it is what is popularly called the already and the not yet. By right, Paul possesses the resurrection from the dead. It is a right. It's an inheritance. And by right, you already possess the resurrection from the dead by right. The actual possession, the actual coming into that, the not yet, is something that is future. And so we have to understand the Christian life. There are plenty of blessings that we already experience There are future blessings that we are yet to experience, but you actually possess the right to those future blessings as much as you do the blessings you have right now. So if you are justified right now, if you're a child of God right now, you have as much right to those blessings as you do to the resurrection of the dead in the future. You don't have to think, well, if I do well with my sanctification, I will attain to the right to my resurrection. No, your resurrection is sealed. He even talks about our citizenship in verse 20 being in heaven. So Paul is talking about one who was unconverted at the beginning of the chapter and then towards the end of the chapter, one who will be glorified. And in between that, you have the whole process of how this all unfolds. There was an early church father called Theodoret. And he says, it was he, Christ, who first caught me in his net. For I was fleeing him and was turned well away in opposition to Christ. He caught me as I fled. 
But now I, in turn, am the pursuer in my desire of catching Him, that I may not be a disappointment to His saving work. And that's a a wonderful, vivid picture of one who is running away from Christ and Christ catches him. But there's a sense in which now we are running towards Christ. Our whole life is one of running towards Him, of seeking to be found in Him and to be made like Him. And so Paul knows that he's not yet perfected. And so this is a wonderful description of human responsibility as a Christian in light of the fact that we have attained to all of the privileges that are ours in Christ. Now notice something else he says. Brothers, in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. There's the not yet. But one thing I do, and you have to understand there's a way in which preachers will um, say certain things to make a point. Uh, When Martin Lloyd-Jones preached, it was as though every passage he was preaching on seemed to be the most important passage in the Scripture. It's just the way he spoke. He's like, oh, there's not, or if there was something sad, there's nothing more sad than what we're about to look at with this matter of Herod and John the Baptist. And then you get to another passage, there's no more glorious promise than this. And that's just what preachers do. That is your second secret into preaching for the evening. Uh, you get to a passage all week, you pray over it, you look at it, and you always seem to think it has this sort of profound significance. And Paul's doing that here. He says, one thing I do. Is that really the only thing he does? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, in one sense, that does encapsulate basically everything. But in other places, we will read, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the sum and substance of Christian living, in a sense. In another place, we're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, which one is it? Deny yourself, take up your cross, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or is it seek first the kingdom of God? Is that the most important? Or press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Is that the one thing we should do? You see what I'm saying? They all basically will amount to the same thing, but it's just a way of Pauline theologizing where he will talk about something as though it is the most important thing in the world. And it is, as he writes this. One thing you should do, forget what lies behind and all of those possible vain regrets you may have about your life, strain forward to what lies ahead. And when you strain forward, you are in the least danger of backsliding. If you were to say, well, what? how am I going to fall forward or back? Have you ever seen that thing where it's the Christian group around that people and they ask the guy and they're demonstrating what true faith looks like and the guy stands on the chair and they tell him, that they're going to catch him and everybody's behind him and he just decides to go the other way and completely falls because instead of falling back and being caught by his beloved Christian friends, he fell forward. Now, I don't know why that that guy did that, but it's very funny. But if you don't want to fall backwards, what's the best thing you can do if you don't want to fall backwards? Well, it isn't actually standing upright. It's leaning forward like this. You're in least danger 
of falling backwards. And sprinters, when they sprint, in order to get somewhere quickly, they're actually taught in which to lean forward as they're about to sprint because of the way in which our bodies are designed. The same is true with the Christian life. We are to be straining forward. We're not to merely be upright. We are to be straining forward. We're to be like the equivalent of young boys and girls who now walk around like this because they have been straining forward to those monstrosities called cell phones. And let's be honest, it's not just the young boys and girls. It's even old people now. They are even more crooked now because of cell phones than they should ordinarily be. We allow a little bit of crookedness but now it is getting out of control. Christians are meant to be sort of like that. Always straining forward. Always pressing forward because there is something so decisive in their outlook on life that they want to attain it. And so one thing he does. He forgets what lies behind and he strains forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what is that? Well, He speaks of growth through obedience in verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now this is very interesting. You see that word there, let those of us who are mature. It is the exact same Greek word, the same adjective is translated as perfect in verse 12. So, Notice in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. And in the Greek, it's the same word where you get down to verse 15, let those of us who are perfect think this way. Now that doesn't make sense. He says, we're not perfect, but then he says later on using the same Greek word, let those of us who are perfect, how can this be reconciled? And it's actually very interesting. If you really are perfect or mature, as Paul is saying, and you can see why the English translators wanted to use a different word, because people would be confused by reading, I'm not yet perfect, and if any of you are perfect. But notice what he's actually saying. Let those of us who are perfect think this way. And what way is that? It's to say this, if you really are perfect, it will be that you realize you aren't already perfect. That's how you can be perfect. So, we know that we are not already perfect, and the sign that we are mature, perfect, is that we know we're not perfect. The sign of Christian maturity is to know how far you fall short at times of sinless perfection. How sinful you still are. And that is why there's a certain sense in which as you mature as a Christian, your sin can become more and more acute and profound in the way you understand yourself. And sometimes you can even be more frustrated the holier you are because you understand who God is better than you used to and what His requirements really demand of you. So the Philippians must be perfect in understanding they have not yet reached perfection. 
And when they have this outlook of humility, remember going back to chapter 2, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have the mind of Christ. When you have this perfect understanding of your imperfection and you are therefore humble, you will actually progress. Christ says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, in John 7.17, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Those who are humble will actually be those who can hold true to what we have attained. And God will reveal these things also to us. Now, Paul continues by speaking of these patterns of behavior, growth through obedience in verses 17 to 19. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's the positive. But notice what Paul does. He often has a negative. He'll have a positive statement and a negative statement. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There are two opposite modes of behavior here. His own versus the enemies of the cross. Now, uh, the uh, sermon title, the imitatio Pauli, is the imitation of Paul. Uh, We have the phrase imitatio Christi, which is the imitation of Christ. It was a very popular uh, concept in the medieval church. Thomas Akempis is the imitation of Christ, but it actually has a great and rich theological history But what's interesting to me is that Paul will actually say in his letters, imitate me, that is imitate Paul, more times than he will say imitate God. Can you believe that? That's quite something. You can go home tonight and skip out of church and say, you know, I learned something. Now, why does he do that? Because there's a sense in which it's pastorally significant. Imitate Paul not as a perfect, sinless person, but imitate Paul as a fellow soldier who is struggling in the same race. And one of the great gifts that God gives to us in the church are Christians who excel in certain areas and it inspires us to imitate their conduct. We talk about how a bad apple spoils the bunch, how people with uh, corruption and bad ways can actually lead people astray, and that's true, but also the converse is true. Your good conduct, your faithfulness in the midst of suffering, your hope in the midst of trials, your prayer, and all of the great gifts and graces that God has bestowed upon you are not just for you, but for others. If there is any excellence in each and every one of you, it is not meant to be a private thing, but actually something that stirs others up to imitation. Imagine thinking that God has put you on earth to be imitated, and yet that's the truth of the Christian faith. We should all, in some sense, be worthy of imitation. That is not how a lot of evangelicals might talk today. We sort of go, well, God is alone worthy of imitation and Christ and stuff. But how many of us would say, like Paul, imitate me? And yet that's precisely what Paul does. 
But he contrasts with those who should not be imitated, the enemies. Now, they could be antinomians, people who have taken the gospel as a license for living in a certain way, and you can kind of pick up on that in verse 19. Their God is their belly, they're indulgent, they live how they want. Or they could be Judaizers, because he says their end is destruction, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things, and the Judaizers gloried in circumcision, earthly things, and the very thing that should cause them shame by boasting in circumcision is something that they glory in. So it could be Judaizers, false teachers, it could be people who are twisting the gospel in such ways that they can uh, live however they want. The point is that Paul is saying, Imitate Him. And that, in context, is not only the humility that one should have, it's the pressing forward towards Christ and not earthly things. Now, he concludes in verses 20 and 21 with one of the richest statements. Here is Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones' comment. One of the richest statements found anywhere of Christian hope in the Bible. Now, can we prove that? Let's see if we can. But our citizenship is in heaven. That's a good start. Uh, Because if that is true, there's not much else in this world that can ruin your day. Your citizenship is in heaven. That takes care of everything. Because that's where you belong. So whatever happens on earth... If your citizenship is in heaven, that's where you ultimately belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, does it get better? Well, in a certain sense, it does. Because at this point, if you were to just read verse 20 in the abstract, and he ended there, it would be missing something absolutely fundamental to what makes heaven heaven. And from heaven, from it, we await a Savior. This is Christian hope. The Lord Jesus Christ who will do what? Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself? What is the whole goal of Christianity? There's another theological phrase. You don't need to write this down, but for those of you who are, uh, let's just say, on the path to theology, Uh, And I was told this morning that Trinity Western are starting a a Bachelor of Theology. Well, let me tell you something. You can get that for free tonight. With all due respect to my dear friends from Trinity Western. And I'm not sure they would teach this point. But I could be wrong. You got this? You got your notes now? What is first in intention... What is primary in God's intention for you is last in execution. And it's a wonderful phrase. What is first, what is primary in God's intention for you is last in execution. And what is last in execution? It is right here. Christ Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Justification is a glorious blessing. Sanctification is a glorious blessing. But what is the point of justification? What is the point of sanctification in this life? The point of those blessings is to get us 
to the point where we are actually like Jesus Christ in body and soul. I don't want you to just think that the transformation here is simply of the body. The body is being used here to comprise everything that makes us truly human. You are going to experience a transformation And that transformation will be from your lowly body, this body that still has indwelling sin and all of the marks of a fallen world, to be like His. In other words, comparable to His resurrection glorious body. When Christ Jesus appears to people after He has ascended on high, what is the outcome usually for people, even Christians, after He has ascended on high, where He has been fully glorified in the presence of the Father? When He appears to the Apostle Paul, what does the Apostle Paul do? Oh, hello. Lovely to meet you. He falls down and he's blinded. What happens to John on the island of Patmos when Christ appears to him? He falls down as though dead. When he appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens to Peter? He just goes out of his mind. Oh, this is wonderful. Why don't we build a shelter? And he starts talking nonsense. There's a sense in which our bodies right now are so inferior to what will one day be that if Christ were to appear with His resurrection body right now in glory, one of two things would happen. We would all fall down blinded or dead or we'd be transformed, all of us, to be like His glorious body. But we certainly wouldn't be sitting here like this. The difference of what is going to take place from these lowly bodies to be like, like His glorious body is such that we cannot possibly conceive of where not just the physical aspect of our being is indestructible, but the spiritual aspect of our being is indestructible so that we will not be able to sin, nor want to sin, nor even countenance the idea of sinning. We will be so holy that there will be no unhappiness, no sorrow, no tears, because we will be glorified. What is first in God's intention to make you to be just like His Son Jesus Christ in body and in soul will be last in execution, and that will happen when He returns. And so Paul typically In light of all of these commandments that lead up to this glorious reality, the Bible often links future hope with ethical commands. In 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, he's spoken of many promises, be diligent to be found by him without spot, blemish, and at peace. In light of what you are going to receive, be diligent to live a holy life. Romans 13.11 Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's talking about the final salvation. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is that? Ethical commands based upon a future hope. And we could read many other places. Why does Paul talk about all of these ethical commands here? Because he's going to finalize it all with a glorious promise that one day you will be like Christ. And that is what has been popularly called the beatific, the blessed vision. 
that as soon as your eyes lock upon Christ's, it will be utterly transforming. In other words, why will your body be transformed from this lowly body at the day of the resurrection? Because you will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by sight. But what does that mean for us here? It means that you are transformed into the image of Christ in precisely the same way except by faith. How are you made more like Christ? By living by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself up for you. And that life of faith where we are transformed from one degree of glory to another is precisely the same means by which we will be transformed when we behold Christ by sight. And isn't that wonderful? God doesn't actually change His way with us. To the degree that you behold Christ now in this life by faith, you will be transformed into His image. To the degree that when He returns, you behold Christ by sight, you will be forever transformed into His image. And so Paul, without going any farther, leaves us, I think, in this chapter with something that to me is worth meditating on a great deal more than perhaps we do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the promises that are ours. Some we have experienced and some are yet to be experienced, but they are no less ours than the ones that are already true. We look forward to that day when Christ returns and these lowly bodies, still with remaining sin, will be transformed to be like His glorious body so that in body and soul we shall be, as it were, just like our Savior. And it must be said there can be nothing better than that. And so we pray that we will all have that hope and we will all experience that reality. For Jesus' sake, Amen.